This is Sound and Vision from KEXP in Seattle. I'm Emily Fox. Coming up in 10 minutes, we'll hear about a side project by two members of The Shins. One of those members was Richard Swift. He died two years ago from complications from alcoholism. He liked to drink. He was one of those people that he really likes to drink. It's fine. But then it sort of grew into this, this demon. But first, Bikini Kill. Bikini Kill was supposed to kick off their 2020 reunion tour with shows in the Pacific Northwest this month. But those shows have since been canceled because of concerns of the coronavirus. Bikini Kill says their shows in the Pacific Northwest will be rescheduled. I caught up with the band last week when they were still planning on playing their shows. I spoke with singer-songwriter Kathleen Hanna, bassist Kathy Wilcox, and drummer Toby Vale about Bikini Kill's career and role in the Riot Girl movement in Olympia, Washington, and beyond. You were part of the Riot Girl movement that started out of Olympia in the early 90s. How would you define Riot Girl? I mean, what what is it and what does it mean to you? This is Kathleen. I think it was a loose-knit group of, you know, punk rock feminists, whether it be people putting on shows, playing in bands, making fanzines, who were interested in bringing punk and feminism together. Um, there are also meetings in that kind of were consciousness raising, skill sharing, things like that, that happened around the country and in other countries as well. It's really hard to describe because it wasn't a consolidated movement with a leader, really. It was sort of something that happened and each group had its own individual identity. So I can't really, you know, explain (laughs) what everybody got out of it or was, was into it. Um, I was a part of starting the first group in Washington, D.C. with Allison Wolf, but um, I sort of had to make the decision at a certain point to not be involved because I really wanted to keep being in Bikini Kill and have that be my main thing. You said, you know, it happened in different places and maybe it meant different things to different people, but what did it mean to just Bikini Kill? I can't say what it mean, meant to Bikini Kill because in a way it became kind of, I think, an alba- I guess I can say it, it became a little bit of an albatross around our necks because everybody expected us to know everything about it. And even though we were just in a band um, and I was just one person in the band who had happened to call the first meeting and be involved early on, I wasn't really involved past like the first year and a half. And the band wasn't really that involved at all. And so we were more like figureheads And then we were expected to always, like, if something weird happened, like some Riot girls in Chicago got in a fight with somebody, it'd be like, Toby, why did that happen? (laughs) And Toby would be like, I don't even know what you're talking about. You know, one time this band was playing in Olympia and I was just hanging around outside and a guy who was working the show came out and was like, Kathleen, there's some Riot girl in there harassing the band. Go in and make it stop. And I was just like, what are you even talking about? I'm just here bumming a cigarette off someone. I don't, I'm like, don't know what you're talking about. But people would treat us like we had some sort of Morris code communication with all other women who are punks. And it was a bit frustrating because obviously we're not all the same. And we didn't have any secret line. We were just like making our music. 
Take us back to like Olympia in the 90s. I mean, there was, you know, we talked about Riot Girl movement. You know, Kurt Cobain was living there for a period of time, dated Toby Vale. Um, K Records was based out of Olympia. They put out early releases of Beck, Modest Mouse and Built to Spill. What was it about just Olympia itself that seemed like it was this hub for new music and ideas? Well, Olympia had a, this is Toby, Olympia had a, uh, a, a pretty significant independent music scene starting in the late 70s, early 80s. So it was just, you know, one of the centers on the West Coast for independent music, largely because of the Evergreen State College and the radio station Chaos that um, had a policy where if you were a DJ there, you had to play 80% independent music. Um, so I think that's kind of how it started. And then I grew up there, and Kathy and Kathleen um, uh, moved to Olympia to go to Evergreen, and that's sort of when our band started. So take us back to some of your early shows. Like, how how did the audience react to you, and, like, what were the messages that you were talking about in your music? Um, I don't think we really thought of ourselves as having a message necessarily. It was just like we were writing about our lives, and I think we were pretty surprised that that was uh, controversial, and then that was just something we had to fight for, like our existence in public space as young women talking about our lives was a threat to the status quo. Are there any songs of yours that, that still feel very much relevant today? This is Kathy. For me personally, I feel like feels blind is the one that feels the most relevant just because to me at least the lyrics sort of are about being gaslit as a young woman and I feel like in the current political climate with the president that we have that one feels the most relevant. Unfortunately, they kind of all feel relevant, which is a little bit depressing, but yeah, I don't know. What do you guys think? Um, for me, it's Little Red that feels the most relevant, and I can't even quote from the lyrics because it's a uh, quote-unquote offensive <laughs> language, <laughs> but it's kind of deals with like, I don't know, Kathleen, how would you want to talk about what that song is about to you because you wrote it, the lyrics? I mean, part of it was about taking the traps of femininity and turning them into weapons, but the part of the song that really gets me every time when I sing it is this line about you are not the victim that you like to make it that way. Pretty girls all gather around to hear your side of things. And it's sort of about the idea that straight white cisgendered men are the real victims of even you know, the Me Too movement, like, oh, we don't want this to hurt their careers or, you know, like, well, isn't it going too far instead of worrying about the women who have been, you know, survived these horrific, like, attacks? And I just think it's it's also really relevant that we have a president who likens the things that are happening to him to, you know, horrific racist violence and, you know, says that he's the victim of everything. And it's, you know, presidential harassment, you know, and he has a longstanding history of obviously like harassing women and espousing racist values and stuff. 
I looked through like all of your lyrics to all of your songs yesterday, and and there's certain things that stuck out to me, like the song Double Daria, you know, with lines like "Don't talk out of line, don't go speaking out of turn." Or a song like White Boy that is just kind of like how much privilege, you know, white men have. In hearing those songs, you know, today within the context of our past and, you know, what's, what's happening currently. And then your biggest hit that, that we play a lot here on KEXP is Rebel Girl. Tell me a little bit about this song. Like, is this song about a certain person? Tell me more about what this song is about. This is Kathleen. I think we wrote that song when we were living in D.C. And it just sort of felt like it came out of the air because we had so many friends who were in town, like Aaron, Molly, and Allison from Bratmobile, and our friend Laura McDougall. And there were just a lot of, like, really exciting things happening, and it felt like when I was writing the lyrics, like I wasn't really writing them. I was just like reached up in the air and there they were. And it's been about different people specifically for me in my head when I sing it, like it always changes. And I think that's true for a lot of songwriters where it's like, you know, sometimes when you write a song, it's actually about like four different people or it's about like yourself and these other people or something you wish somebody would say to you or, you know what I mean? It's not like, oh, it's about this person, because like one minute it would be about Juliana Looking, who's an amazing spoken word artist. And, you know, then it became about my friend Ali Randall, um, who wrote a fanzine about fat phobia. And then it would become about, you know, Toby. So it would just, it kind of changes and evolves like every time I sing it. That was my conversation with Bikini Kill. Their show scheduled in the Pacific Northwest this month will be rescheduled due to the coronavirus. This is Sound and Vision. A side project by two members of The Shins was released on vinyl in streaming services on Monday. It's called Teardrops. Teardrops is the album title and name of the side project by Yuki Matthews and Richard Swift. They started this project in 2013 while on tour with the Shins. Here's Matthews explaining how Swift pitched the idea to him in 2013. We'd do art together, watch movies and stuff like that. And then one day he was just like, would you ever want to just like do a recording project that was just you and me and you know we were pretty much best friends but I was all I've always been a fan of his you know so it was like this this guy that I 
admire and love saying, do you want to do this thing together? And I was like, absolutely. Richard Swift also toured with the Black Keys. He was a producer and solo artist with hits like Broken Finger Blues. Monday would have been Swift's 43rd birthday. He died in July of 2018 from hepatitis due to alcoholism. I asked Matthews what it was like to work with Swift and who he was as a musician. As a musician, he was completely fearless and not in an overbearing way. He was just very natural and like an hour could go by and you'd have almost an entire idea completed and it was just really amazing how he worked. He was just like on to the next idea, on to the next idea, um, which is very different from how most people work, I would say, in music. It's like, let's, it's usually like, let's focus on this one thing for a long time and, uh, and make sure that one thing is the best. But he was sort of like, you, you did it. That was a moment in time. Let's move on. So that's something I really take with me from from being with him and spending time with him is just to kind of move on to the next thing. How would you describe him just as a person, as a human? He was very, very lovable. Just such a sweet, humongous heart on that guy. And he was the funniest guy I've ever met. But he was very troubled, you know, and that, that would show itself... Um, with his drinking, and um, yeah, I've never talked about this, but um, yeah, he was he was flawed, you know. So I think it's like you think about the greatest comedians of our time, or you know, in history, these people bring so much joy to so many people, and then at the end of the day, they go home, and I think there's a sense of loneliness and a sense of unfulfillment somehow. And I think he definitely had that. And there's, you know, various reasons for that. His childhood was really tough. Um, but yeah, so so it was like this double-edged thing where I loved him and I love him. And there was actually a moment when when we were working on this where he looked at me and he said, you're my best friend. And it really caught me off guard, and I think the reason why is because knowing all of his faults really made it difficult for me to open up completely to him as far as I did go with it. Like, he, we were 99% there, but there was that little bit where I was like, man, I don't know if I can really attach myself because I don't know where this road is going to go, you know? Like you can't get too close. Can't, can't you're get afraid? too close because, yeah, I was I was afraid of that dark side of him. What was your reaction when you heard of his death? I was devastated. Um, uh, how did, I don't even remember how I found out. Um, so okay, I knew he had a drinking problem when we were on tour with the Shins. It was clear that he had a problem. And even before that, I played in his band, 
And it was sort of, that it had just started growing, you know. It was like, he liked to drink. He was one of those people who were like, he, he really likes to drink. It's fine. But then it sort of grew into this, this demon. Um, and I remember his wife, Shay, called me to ask if we could do hospice at our house, at my house. And that was sort of the first moment I knew that it was really serious because... Honestly, I had stopped communicating with him because it was so erratic and the drinking had gotten so bad. So um, it had maybe been a year since I had heard from him. Um, So, yeah, she asked us to do that. But then they eventually found a place down in Tacoma. And I went to visit him when I heard that down there. And then right before he died, I visited him one more time and... I got to sit with him and hold his hand and tell him I love him and that I'm going to miss him. And, uh, yeah, it was just heavy, so heavy. I mean, that sounds like it. Yeah. Um, and then, you know, you've, you've now released, you know, you're about to release this album, um, you know, now on streaming services, on vinyl, under the name Teardrops, your collaboration with R- Richard Swift. Yeah. Um, What was the moment for you that you're realizing, like, I worked on this record and we haven't released it? You know, I think you started working on it, what, in 2013 or something? Yeah, yeah, it was a long time ago. And, and, you know, you released it um, the first wave, you know, a year after his passing, and now you're going to release it, you know, more on the anniversary of his his birthday um, on Monday. And so for you, you know, following his passing and you realizing we still have this content we never finished, Mm -hmm. what was that like for you to to realize, I still want to release this? Yeah, that's a good question. So um, the anniversary of his death happened, I don't remember the date off the top of my head, but last year, and I was seeing tribute after tribute to him come online on Instagram and Twitter and things like that. And I was like, it was very impulsive and sort of like out of body. I was like, I need to put this somewhere I knew that getting on streaming services probably wouldn't happen in an hour, but I could set up a Bandcamp thing right away. So I did that and put it on, and and the response was really amazing. And then from that point, I sort of made it a more thoughtful effort to get it on streaming and vinyl. And I've been talking to his estate, his you know his manager, and Chris Swanson at Secretly. They're going to help out with promoting it and stuff like that. So... Yeah, it's more of a proper release now, celebrating his birth rather than his death. So, yeah. And what is that like, you know, to, to be able to hear these songs and listen to them? I mean, what do, you, what do you take away from the record and what do you hope others will take away from the record? Um, I don't know. I have an emotional response to it, a, a good emotional response, and it sort of makes me nostalgic and makes me think of the time that I spent with Richard making this thing. But as for what people could get from it, I don't know. There's a lot of him on it, and I think that's pretty apparent when you listen to it. So yeah, I think you can hear a different side of him on this record that you didn't necessarily get with his singer-songwriter stuff, or even his production stuff, because I think his production stuff lied primarily in the singer-songwriter genre, Um, and this is something totally different. That was my conversation with Yuki Matthews. His project with the late Richard Swift called Teardrops was released on vinyl and streaming platforms on Monday. That was also Richard Swift's birthday. 
This is Sound and Vision. I now leave you with the final question of the show. Why does music matter? Here's Bikini Kill. Well, I've always been really interested in the culture surrounding music making because it's a really good entry point into accessing culture, which is how it's a form of language. So it's you, you can almost like change what things mean. I mean, it's kind of like a heady sort of thing to reference, but I don't think it's just music itself. It's also the culture surrounding it, like the language of how we make meaning in the world or whatever. And that's why it's important that women be involved. This is Kathleen. I also think that in terms of youth culture, music is so such a big way to identify yourself when you're a teenager or preteen or whatever of like, what kind of music you like sort of sets up who you hang out with and stuff like that. And so to be a part of creating feminist culture through music means that you're creating another option. Like when I went to school, it was like, you could be a wavo, which was like new wave music, or you could be a rocker or you could be into like sixties music, like the doors or whatever. And I like the idea that there's groups of, girls who are like, you know, their shared love of Lizzo brings them together or their shared love of Bikini Kill brings them together or if they have so many more options now. And it's exciting to be a part of that. Yeah, especially as a young person, like Kathleen said, I feel like music is so important in terms of introducing new ideas that maybe you had never thought of. Like if you're only listening to maybe top 40 radio, you get just a very limited palette of ideas about how to look at the world. And I feel like especially a lot of the young people that came to our shows, you know, and they would write us letters or whatever. It was more like I had never heard a song that reflected my personal reality the way that your band did. Or it wasn't until I heard Bikini Kill that I actually thought about all the stuff that I had gone through in my own life. So I I feel like it's important in that sense, just in terms of like, you know, introducing different ideas or things for young people to, you know, be exposed to. That was Sound and Vision. Be sure to subscribe, rate, and review this podcast. And while KEXP wrapped up our spring fun drive last week, there is still time to give to the show. Consider giving a $20 donation to this podcast at kexp.org slash sound. Thanks for listening.